We read together to remind us of where we are going, that is towards Jesus, allowing the scriptures, the Holy Spirit, and the family of God to form a fidelity of allegiance to him alone. Please read aloud with me as we confess this together. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary and was made man. For our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, happy Sunday. I'm glad you are here in the room or online. Would you turn to your neighbor and give him a big smile? Come on, give him a big smile. Let him know you're happy to see them online. Drop that smiley face emoji in the chat. You have your uh, Bibles. Join me in Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3. If you have your mobile phone, you can pull out your phone and there's a QR code on your screens. You can snap a photo with that your app. It'll open up a link so that you can follow along if you would like to do that. While you're uh, getting to Matthew 3, uh, this Sunday is Easter Sunday coming up in just a little bit. It's going to be a great, great celebration and uh, really looking forward to celebrating Easter with you. One of the things that we deeply desire to do as a church is to help you uh, grow as a disciple, somebody who knows God through his word, practices the way of Jesus, and helps others to do the same. And one way that we can grow in our knowledge and our understanding is to not miss moments like Holy Week. This week is Holy Week on the church calendar where we're celebrating the week leading up to the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And uh, to do that, we put together a 40-hour kind of path and experience for you and your family. You can do it individually. You can do it as a whole family. You can find information on our central hub about that. 40 hours. We would encourage you to fast and to prepare your heart for celebrating Easter Sunday. Uh, there are instructions in a PDF that you can find on our central hub. And if you want a, a link sent to you and you want to sign up to participate with us as a church, you can text the keyword 40 hours, no spaces, to our text line, and uh, you'll make sure you have the PDF. You'll want to read through it. It gives you instructions on what to do, resources that you might want nearby, scriptures to read, prayers to pray, as we kind of do something physical to help our internal, our inward life, our spirit, soul, uh, to be ready to move in the direction of Jesus and in celebration of him. And so I want to invite you to do that with us. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1 is where we're going to be. We started this collection of messages kind of walking through this book of the Bible, the, the gospel of Matthew. And we said something really kind of foundational last week. We said the gospels are the gospel. What is contained in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is uh, contains in there the gospel that Jesus proclaimed. And it's important that we realize that because if we don't start with the gospel that Jesus preached, we might end up with a version of the gospel that Jesus did not preach. And we want to make sure that we're hearing the gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed. Author Mark Clark says this. He says, locating Jesus in his original context is paramount for two reasons. First, it works against a dangerous temptation that we all have, making Jesus in our own image and using him for whatever agenda we need him for. We all face a similar temptation, but we must do the work of locating Jesus in his setting so we don't make the mistake of adapting Jesus to our setting. Jesus was not a 21st century middle class white North American. Nor was he a rural Chinese farmer or a new age guru. He was not a communist, a capitalist, a social justice warrior. 
He was not a Democrat or a Republican, a liberal or conservative. He was a first century Galilean Jew who spoke and lived like his contemporaries, but with an explosive message for all people in every time and place, including you and me. It's really important that we start with Jesus and understand some things. Now, I want to make a statement kind of upfront that's going to help us with something. Just because something is biblical doesn't necessarily mean it was the gospel that they proclaimed. Gospeling was something specific. It had a specific announcement about some specific things. There are lots of things that we find in the Bible, topics and truths and understanding. They are biblical and right and true and they impact our life. But that doesn't necessarily mean they are explicitly included in the gospel message that, the, that Jesus himself gospeled. They're not antagonistic to it, right? They're not the antithesis of it. They're not obstinate of it. They are often found within those, those things introduced. But there was something specific that Jesus came and he proclaimed. There was something that the disciples were very clear to proclaim as the gospel. God's word is God's word. The gospel was something that they told, an announcement that was made, a, 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 an event that occurred, a, had a large context and a story and unveiling, and it kind of sat between some things. If that's not making a lot of sense to you, go back and listen to last Sunday's message when we introduced this understanding of what is the gospel. And it's going to be really, really helpful for you as we kind of move forward into today's conversation and study. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1, we're introduced to a man by the name of John, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, and he came proclaiming some good news, and you are going to discover that what John proclaimed as good news is the same thing that Jesus proclaimed as good news. Let's take a look at it together. Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1. In those days... John the Baptist came to the Judean wilderness and began preaching. His message was, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Can we read that verse together? Let's leave that one on the screen. Let's read verse 2 together. Ready? Read. Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Just pause for one second. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, here's Jesus' words himself. From then on, Jesus began to preach, Repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Are those pretty close to the same thing? Yes or yes? All right, very good. I just wanted to make sure that you saw that. Verse 3, Matthew 3, verse 3, goes on to say this. Then the prophet Isaiah was speaking about John himself when he said, he is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord's coming, clear the roads for him. John's clothes were woven from coarse camel hair and he wore a leather belt around his waist. For food, he ate locusts and wild honey. People from Jerusalem and from all Judea and all over the Jordan Valley went out to see and hear John. And when they confessed their sins, he baptized them in the Jordan River. Notice that it wasn't when they were perfectly living all the right things that they were baptized. It was after they made an acknowledgement of like, I've been sinning, I've been going the wrong way, I need to go a different way, I need to go the way of Jesus. Once they recognized that, acknowledged that, confessed that, they were then baptized in water. We're baptizing people next Sunday. If you've never been water baptized, this is your opportunity to do just that. To go and say, I've been going the wrong way, but I'm going to go the way of Jesus from here on out. I'm going to walk and live and move and allow Jesus to be King and Lord and Messiah in my life. Verse 7. But when he saw many Pharisees and Sadducees, these were the religious people, the, the church-going folk of the day, coming to watch him baptize, John denounced them. You broad of snakes, he exclaimed. Who warns you to flee the coming wrath? Prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. Don't just say to each other, oh, we're safe. We're descendants of Abraham. 
We were born in America. It's fine. Grandma went to church. We're safe. It's okay. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Even now, the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. He goes on to say, I baptized with water those who repent of their sins and turn to God. Oh, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater than I'm not worthy even to be his slave or carry his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He is ready to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with never-ending fire. Doesn't that just make you feel all warm and fuzzy on the inside? Ooh, John, I like your messages. I want to acknowledge a few things. John's message, again, it's incredibly similar to Jesus' message. Repent of your sins, not your neighbor's sins, but your sins. Don't point out your husband's sins. Repent of your sins. Don't blame the church that you used to go to for their sins. Repent of your sins. Don't blame the society and the world that's all going to hell in a handbasket. No, no, no. Repent of your sins and turn to God for the kingdom of heaven is near. For the kingdom of heaven is near. John did not put himself in the center of the gospel. He recognized that there was a central figure in the gospel, and it was Jesus. He was coming to be king, Messiah, and Lord. It was all about Jesus. The King Jesus gospel is what we've called this collection. And they use this phrase, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven. I want you to understand it's not the kingdom of heaven up there. It's not the heaven that I want to go to when I die where we experience some disembodiment paradise or whatever. That's, that's not what they referred to when they referred to heaven. Biblical understanding of heaven was an awareness where God was present and dwelling. John 1.1 tells us that Jesus left that place where God dwelt and put on human flesh to make his dwelling among the people. Heaven invaded earth and now is making his home in this place. This, this word kingdom is a really interesting word. It's, the, it's from the Greek, uh, basilia. It's B-A-S-I-L-E-I-A. -I, -I, I share that because some of you, like me, like to get a little Greeky with it, and we can get Greeky together. Uh, it's this word kingdom, and it refers to something very, very specific. It refers to the domain over which a king rules, where his rule and reign is preeminent and dominant. In other words, the kingdom of heaven that they said is now coming near, the kingdom of heaven is existing and operating everywhere that Jesus excuse me, is given dominion and reign. In other words, if you want to experience God's kingdom, if you want the kingdom of heaven to come near to your life, that means that you allow him to be the king of your life and his rule and reign dominate your entire life. In other words, if you want the rule and the reign of the kingdom of heaven to come and find its way into your marriage, into your relationships, it's because you have allowed him to be king over that relationship. Everywhere you allow the king to be king in your life, that is the place where the kingdom of heaven is near. And that is what Jesus came to pronounce, announce, and proclaim. That's what John came to pronounce and proclaim. John came heralding the arrival of a king. Prepare the way for him. Who's making an announcement. I love that today is Palm Sunday. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate and we remember the day Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the Sunday before he would be killed on a cross, buried and raised again on the third day, a week before the beginning of what's called Holy Week in the church calendar was the day Jesus rode into town. 
And what did people do as he rode into town? They exclaimed, they waved branches, they were celebrating and singing, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna is he. They were heralding and proclaiming the arrival of a king. And the religious people didn't like that people were getting all expressive in their worship. He who has ears, let them hear. They were not excited that people were having their hands lifted and singing praises to a man. And they had some hard hearts. And Jesus says, don't you understand? God is worthy to be praised. He doesn't need your praise, but he's deserving of your praise. And if you're not willing to give him praise, the rocks themselves will cry out. Look at what John told the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They didn't like the, the announcement that he made about Jesus being king in Matthew chapter 3. And what did he tell them? Oh, you think you're special because you're descendants of Abraham, as if God needs you for something. Oh, if God needed kids to be in his family, he could create rocks themselves to cry out. The thematic crossover between what John did and said in Matthew chapter 3 and what Jesus said and did and experienced in Luke 19 and in Matthew chapter 20 when he rode into town was remarkable and fun. Go do a little crossover study of it. It's really fascinating. But he came to announce something. Friends, like John the Baptist, we have an assignment to prepare the way for others to meet Jesus as king. To proclaim that the king has come and he will come again. This is why we invest in relationships, not to manipulate people, but so that the king that rules in our heart, that the friendships in our lives get a front row seat to see what it looks like to be submitted and surrendered to a king in our life today. And maybe, just maybe, when they see what it looks like to have a king like Jesus rule and reign in every area of your life, they too will want to celebrate and proclaim and receive this same king in their life. Sometimes that's because we simply share the story of our faith like many of you have already begun to do out on the story of faith wall where you snapped a picture and you wrote, what is it? What is your story of faith? You're beginning to tell your story. Some of you, it's about investing in these relationships and you finally just invite them to come to church so that they can experience what does it look like for people of God to celebrate and honor a king in their life and they get another glimpse into what does it look like to be a family member in the kingdom of God. And we invest and we invite them to come along. John was proclaiming something that we still proclaim today. John also was doing something interesting. He was confronting the religious people who, had a re who in their religious pursuits, were creating diversions that led people away from God's intended plan and purpose. And his way of confronting it was to remind them that fire is coming and it's going to purify. It's going to separate those who are following God in his ways and those who have put on a show and pretending or have fallen off into a ditch somewhere, believing something that isn't quite the truth of what Jesus came to proclaim. Fire was coming to purify. <laughs> Jesus is coming, friends, again, in the end, for a bride, the bride of Christ, the people of God. And when Jesus returns, he is looking for a bride who is pure, who is spotless, who has been clean and made ready to receive her husband and king. There were some assumptions that the religious people held that day. And John kind of brought to light their assumptions. Oh, you assume that you're going to be okay. You assume you're a Christian because you live in this land and you were born into this nation of people. You assume that you're living a blessed life because X, Y, or Z. You assume that you have got the corner on the market of all that God holds to be true. You assume that your religion is the only religion and everybody else is wrong and your, your, your group of people and your synagogue is the only synagogue. You, you assume some things. And John confronted those very things. And, and he confronted it by saying some really strong, strong things. And some of the things that he, he 
brought, were, were contrary to their culture and their understanding. Many of it was to their own practices of how they worshipped and pursued God. Many of it had to do with, with a lot of different things. And he basically says, but, but hear me, if it doesn't bear fruit for the kingdom of God, God's going to cut it away. And it's easy sometimes to pick up things in our cultural moment, to pick up things in our upbringing and our lives, and to assume that we've got the corner on the market. Friends, today, with every ounce of um, fear and trembling, humility, I feel like my assignment is a little bit like John the Baptist today. To bring our attention to some things that we have culturally picked up along the way, perhaps some diversions of what we believe to be the gospel, some biblically founded truths, others just wrong and incorrect teachings entirely. And I feel like my job is to kind of help prepare us to allow some things to be cut out from among us so that we can be fruit bearers in the image and the nature and the likeness of God so that we can make sure Jesus is the king of our heart and nothing else. So that we can be pruned for his good work and use. And I'm going to do it today the best I can. And, and I think it's really important that you would understand that there are, are four things that I want to address today. I only got through two in the first service. So I'm only going to tackle the second two in this service. And you can go and merge the two messages together to get the full picture of what um, this is that we're proclaiming and, and, and looking at today. Sound good? But before I get into that, I want you to uh, look at this picture. Uh, and uh, as, the as it comes up on the screen, I want you to uh, kind of participate. Tell me what is it that you see on the screen. Go ahead, just, just speak it out loud. Animals, plants, flowers, what else? Streams, right? We're seeing, you're seeing things. Now, how many of you, with all conviction and truth in your own heart, would be willing to raise your hand and say, I believe what I'm seeing to be accurate and true. Some of you feel like you're getting tricked. You're not. The correct answer is to raise your hand and say, what I'm seeing on the screen is accurate and true. Those are true things that you are seeing. That's really a polar bear. That's really some dogs. That's really some antelopes and some uh, flowers. And some, you're really seeing those things. Show, let me see the next picture, though. Now what do you see? Now what do you see? You see the outline in the picture of Jesus Christ. You see Jesus in this picture. What you saw in a zoomed-in look is true, it was accurate, but not complete. When you focus on little nuances, it's easy to miss the main point. Today I want to share with you four American pop gospels where we look at nuances but miss the big picture. Some of the nuances that you would look at in, these, in this gospeling and this proclaiming of something are accurate and true and right. Some are not. But if we're not willing to take a look and say, Jesus, we want to see you as king, and that's the center of our gospel, then anything else that we would add in or define as the gospel is maybe not the gospel that Jesus himself proclaimed. And that's what I want to look at together. And the four that we're going to look at are, uh, one, the Reformed gospel, two, prosperity gospel, three, evangelical gospel, and four, the social gospel. All of these are terms that are not my own, but are used by these individual groupings and schools of thought. These are pre prevalent in our American pop culture. Now, when I say pop culture, I'm not talking like Backstreet Boys, Justin Bieber, Taylor Swift, just shake it off kind of pop. Uh, I'm talking about a popular level of understanding and proclamation of a gospel. That's what we want to look at. Now, I'm going to use... Um, a style that is similar to how Jesus would teach from time to time in what he would consider a comparing and contrasting way of talking and helping us understand a truth. Now, this is not, uh, number one, 
uh, just because I'm using something that Jesus would use, I am in no way, shape, or form trying to proclaim that what you are about to hear is on the level of Jesus. Can we just, are we good with that? Like, don't hear something I'm not saying. This is me talking. Jesus himself is not standing before you preaching something, all right? But I want to use this same method. This is not a method that I use very often. I'm much more of a person that would rather come and say, here's what I believe to be true. Here's what scripture is saying. Let's go in this direction. Rather than spending energy on time of what it isn't and what's not, and what can often sound like a critique, it is not my heart and my desire to do those things. It is not my heart, my desire, or my aim today to provide some snarky, sarcastic caricature of these different gospel labels in an attempt to be condescending. I believe with all of my heart that in each of these groupings, there are deeply sincere people who want to follow Jesus with their heart, soul, mind, and strength. I believe that. This is not an indictment on a person or in, uh, in no way, shape, or form is this meant to be some sort of spiritual hit piece exposing the ills of anyone or anything. I have zero stomach for that. Despite a growing appetite for it in our culture today. But I want us to be able to not get fixated on the nuance of something in Scripture that we're missing the point and the picture of the gospel itself. So I want us to hold that clearly today as we walk. Now remember, the old adage goes something like this. For every one mile of road, there are two miles of ditch. Ever heard that phrase you're saying before? For every one mile of road... There are two miles of ditch. Um, I feel that these four American pop gospels, the first two, the, re the Reformed gospel and the Prosperity gospel, are a ditch on either side of a road that is meant to lead us to Jesus, but they're ditches nonetheless. I believe that what I want to talk about in the next few minutes together as we look at the evangelical gospel and the social gospel are two ditches on either side of a road that where we want to travel towards Jesus. And when you find yourself in a ditch and your tires rubbing off the road, what is our tendency to do? Overcorrect, which can lead us into another ditch altogether. And that is not what we want to do. My heart today is very, very pastoral. I'm not going to spend any time um, reiterating what is the Reformed gospel and what is the prosperity gospel and my heart and my understanding of what they are, the value that they have brought, but also the damage and the off and the ditches that they bring us into. I, I'm not going to spend any time today. Again, go back and listen to the first service's message to hold those and to grab those and to listen to those. And please, 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 please listen entirely to them. And if you're confused at the end of it, like, oh, what is the gospel? Go back and listen to last week's message and make sure you're here with us for the remainder of this collection as we explore the study of the Gospel of Matthew and discover the King Jesus Gospel. So with great grace in your heart and mind and understanding that we want to see the big picture of what God is after, let's look at number three, the evangelical gospel, or what could be called the simple gospel or a salvation gospel. Here's the overview. You are a sinner going to hell. God loves you. Jesus died on the cross for your sins. If you believe in him, you will go to heaven when you die. In other words, the context of the story of God's people, which is necessary for understanding the gospel that Jesus proclaimed, has now been reduced down to personal salvation of an individual and lost sight of the whole understanding of the people of God as a whole. Some of uh, many authors and think leaders, thought leaders, talk about how revivalism and reductionist approaches to gospeling or the proclaiming of good news, gospeling, I love that you can use the word gospel as a noun, you can use it as a verb, you can use it in all sorts of ways, and it's accurate to do so. 
but it, it, it reduces it down from a reductionist point of view or a, or a revivalist point of view. Exploring uh, the reality of the revivalists of the 1940s and the 1950s where this gospeling really came into its own and really was on the map in the Christian world, along with the four spiritual laws, the Romans road, and an emphasis of evangelism through passing out gospel tracts. Some of them look like $100 bills, and you think you found it, and you're like, yes, only to realize it contains the four spiritual laws, and there is no money involved whatsoever, and your heart is crushed and broken in that moment. This is the revivalism and the reductionism of these things. Author Scott McKnight says it like this. Thus, blaming revivalism is criticizing the evangelical habit of working harder to make decisions than to make disciples. It's pointing a, a finger, a long finger, at a very thin soteriology without a robust theology. Christology, pneumatology, and ecclesiology, and it may well not know that it appears to meet that, quote-unquote, God loves you, as the first law in the four spiritual laws, it departs from any form of evangelism among previous revivalists that has been seen or studied. In other words, proclaiming that Jesus loves you is great, but in the 1940s and 50s, in the revival sweep across America, there was a reduction of those things to mean something, and it lost sight of the whole of something. That's all he's trying to get at. He goes, furthermore, the, the critique takes dead aim at an Individual conversion absent of ecclesial formation and contents. Ecclesiology is the understanding of the people of God in a local context known as the gathering of God's people, i.e. church. And furthermore, or finally, it, it disguises itself with techniques, music, lighting, ambiance, the whole setup that are all designed to generate an emotive response to stirring stories and presentations of persuasion. It puts a, a dead aim on an individual choice that you would make in an emotional stirring to make a decision. But God's call wasn't that we would make a decision alone. It was that we would become disciples. And there's a whole understanding we need to understand. And here's, here's one thing we need to understand. This is not something Jesus himself preached. It's not getting up there when you die, but Jesus proclaimed heaven coming here and near. It's not just an individual transaction, but rather a life transformation. It's not an individual faith, but it's something that's born into a story of a whole family of God. It's, there was no call to making disciples. It made, it op, made discipleship as an op, optional add-on if you're interested rather than a pathway in which we experience the salvation and transformation of God. It would ask people to respond in an emotional environment, being, being persuaded, and then once you've been persuaded and made a decision, you raised your hand, you're good. That's it. There's nothing else you needed to do. John Ortberg speaks of this moment like this. In this way of thinking about salvation, the goal is to get from down here to up there about how to know for sure that you're heading to the good place. It usually involves praying a very specific prayer, believing a set of doctrines about God, and other things that make someone a Christian. Ironically, it doesn't necessarily involve a life of apprenticeship to Jesus. Which leads us to then understanding that if the reason we can't get saved is our sin, then it leads us to a life of sin management and salvation by minimal requirements to get into heaven when we die. The question is often presented in this gospeling, are you saved? Saved from what? In other words, have you met the minimum requirements to get the benefit of heaven when you die? I don't even know if that's the right question to ask. Is that what salvation actually means the new testament merits our understanding of salvation much closer to the understanding of marriage than a legal status and a relational covenant in other words asking 
Have you prayed the prayer and done the minimal requirements? It would be like, are you married because you have a marriage certificate? Can you imagine going to your spouse and say, what are the minimal requirements for me in order to uh, stay married in this uh, here arrangement that we've got? Does that even sound like the life that Jesus encompassed or taught us about the life with the Father? No. It's much more robust about having a relationship with God that is growing and developing and transforming and confronting my ways that make me die to myself and say yes to this love of my life. It's not just the bare minimum of missing the mark. There is no golden ticket in the gospel message. And this might blow some of your minds. But this sinner's prayer and the salvation prayer is not listed anywhere in the Bible. Where if you pray this prayer, you're good. It's just not there. I would say that both the Reformed gospel the evangelical gospel, and even the prosperity gospel can produce consumers of Jesus' merit rather than forming disciples of Jesus' way. Much has been said, and rightly so, about how consumerism has crept into Christianity and the church, how we are just here to consume something, and we just think that we're here to be entertained by something, and we're here to just feel good about something, much has been said and taught, and rightfully so, but I wonder if we have yet to perhaps relate the rise of consumerism within the church to our improper teaching of the gospel itself. Just sit back. God does it all. It places a large emphasis. All, all, all three of these, the first three that we mentioned, it places a large emphasis on believing the right things in your heart. But friends, even the demons believe the right things about God and Jesus and eternity. And they're going to spend eternity in hell and be separated from God forever. Right belief is very, very important. It's biblical, it's right. But that is not the central reality of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, the gospel that Jesus proclaimed was, I am king, I am Lord, follow me and be my disciple. I believe that we receive the salvation work of God through a work that God himself does, that grace by faith Yes, but that word and our understanding about faith must be nuanced and understood. It's not just a faith about believing abstract doctrines. It's an understanding that because of those things that I know and believe to be true about this person, Jesus, I'm giving my life in repentant following after him. It is allowing my heart to be fully allegiance to one man and one man only, and his name is Jesus. He's the Messiah, the anointed one, the savior of the world. He is king. He has come once and he is coming again. And I'm giving my life to follow him. And in every nook and cranny, if there's an area in my heart, in my life, if there's a relationship, if there's a habit, if there's a lifestyle, if there's a perception, if there's money involved, if there's materialism, if there's consumerism, if there's, if there's addiction and trouble anywhere that he is not king, that means I'm trying to be. And that's not the gospel. You can't manage your sin enough. You can't earn it. And you definitely don't deserve it but it's still an invitation to acknowledge that he is king, to confess that Jesus is Lord and to make my way into his kingdom as I follow the Messiah and allow his word to transform who I am. Is believing the right thing important? Yes. As many times our beginning to follow Jesus start with a prayer of repentance and submission. Yes. 
But to say, is that enough to get me into heaven is the wrong question. It's the wrong end result. I'm not trying to get there one day. I'm waiting for him to come here fully. Because he's king and he's coming again to set right the world of injustice. Which leads us to the fourth American pop gospel. It's the social gospel or the social justice gospel. And it's a growing one in our world today. It's a growing one, especially among young people. It's a social justice gospel. It is actually a soft Marxist worldview. It views relationship with a power, uh, through the lens of power dynamics. It's morally progressive. It says things like Jesus was a political revolutionary. He confronted the abuse of power. Church is viewed in a progressive way. Social justice becomes the only form of justice. And equality and inclusion and acceptance are the highest virtues in this gospel. Here's some of the good of the social gospel. is that it uses kingdom language. It's the only one of the four that actually uses kingdom language. It puts an emphasis, hear me, on action. Living out your faith, demonstrating your allegiance to Jesus, doing the things that Jesus would do to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. It, it looks and it longs to confront uh, the individual and institutional sin that exists. It, it presents dignity towards all people. It calls out racism and sexism and classism and militarisms. All good things all edging us back, but if we're not careful, we overcorrect into a ditch. We have to understand Jesus refused to be a political activist. We have to understand Jesus was not morally progressive. I don't care what TikTok theologians tell you. They're not right. The big problem is that there's an ongoing compromise in this gospeling of theologic, theological liberalism. Woke is its new anthem. And history tells us, go back all of church history and look at churches and denominations and those that latch onto the social justice gospel as the gospel. Where love your neighbor is more important than loving God. Both are important. Don't mistake it. In fact, I don't believe you can love your neighbor until you've actually learned how to love God. And loving God is not an excuse for treating people like jerks. That's also true. Got a little fired up there. I need to back up. History tells us this. As a church, an individual, as it goes liberal, both morally and theologically. That's all I'm talking about. Morally and theologically liberal, it begins to die and lose its life. It withers on its own vine. And it will get burned up in the end. The Reformed gospel, prosperity gospel, the evangelical gospel, and the social justice gospel. My guess is you've probably grown up hearing, adopting, and thinking in alignment with one of these, maybe multiples of these. I know I have. And the things that I shared today are not just random things for me. These are things that over the last several years, I would say four years, that God has been shaping and reshaping and removing and cleaning up and purifying in me personally. What does it look like to be a person of the gospel? To be a person who tells and proclaims the way of King Jesus. Friends, the gospel you live in is the gospel that you will live out. God came to us in Jesus. He is active and present. We can repent 
and revise our priorities around this relationship within Trinitarian love of Father, Son, and Spirit, not trying to get by with the bare minimum requirements. That's the wrong question. And Jesus continually confronted that very question. We are not meant to experience a gospel that presents simply a transaction, but rather a gospel that invites us into a process of transformation. As a church, we're here at Faith 2.0. It's our theme this year. What is Faith 2.0? It's a renewal around what it looks like to be a disciple and apprentice of Jesus who knows God through his word, intimately through an experience with him. To be people who follow and walk out the way of Jesus, not the way of our society, not the way of our priorities, not the way of our adoption, not the way of our assumed theology. It's none of those things. It's following in the way of Jesus. And we invite other people to come along and do it with us. This is what I'm talking about today. It's a renewal around the understanding of the King Jesus gospel. We can't leave it simple. We want to have, as a church, we will be simple and uncomplicated in our methodology and philosophy of ministry. We will continue to have an engaged, charismatic ethos as a church. But make no mistake, we will be anchored to orthodox doctrine of Jesus as King, Messiah, and Lord. And that is the gospel we will always proclaim. We cannot be consumers of the kingdom. We must begin to have communion with the king. We cannot control kingdom realities, but we do get to contribute and steward within the kingdom as ambassadors of the king. Friends, the kingdom is near and it is everywhere that you allow Jesus to be king. So if he's not king in your work and how you work and your work ethic, then the kingdom is not in that space. If he's not king in how you treat other people, whether you agree or disagree, theologically, politically, socially, then he's not king in that area of your life either. The kingdom is near everywhere you allow him to be king. And you proclaim he is Lord of my life. He's the king. He's worthy to be praised, and he's here. Would you stand as we come to the table of the Lord? Would you go ahead and begin to open up your communion elements, those that have them, top, peel back, get the, get the bread, the wafer, and then the, the next layer, go ahead and just peel back the cup so that you have the juice and just hold on to both there for just a minute and I want you just to bow your heads close your eyes just for a second and I, and I know that there are many of us that, that probably are maybe sidling a little uneasy like yeah but what does that mean what about this what about that and I hope that you'll listen to both these messages and last week's message and just sit with it for a little while. Be uncomfortable for just a minute. I hope it does ruffle some of us. It's ruffled me. Timothy Keller says this, it's not the quality of your faith that saves you. It's the object of your faith. His name is Jesus, and he's the king. And he gets our loyalty and our allegiance. He gets our life. And Lord, that's our recommitment every time we come to the table. Lord, it's not that communion doesn't have some specific elements, but Lord, the, the water baptism and these communion moments, these are demonstrations of the full gospel. That because of what you did, you've invited us into a kingdom, made it all right and good, and given us the role of apprentices under you. And it's our decision to repent and follow that invitation, like in water baptism, that 
moves us into the kingdom where we allow you to be king. And so, Lord, as we stand here in this moment, remind us of our baptism again. Remind us of your lordship again. Remind us of the desire to pursue you again. Remind us that faith is not something we possess, but rather it's a direction that moves us towards a person, the object of our love, our affection, our allegiance, our belief. It's you, Jesus. You are the king. And that's what we celebrate and we commit and surrender to today at the table. As we take the bread, which represents your body broken for us, we do it remembering you, King Jesus. Let's take the bread together. And Lord, now we take the cup, which represents your blood, and we do it in remembrance of you, King Jesus. You can just hold on to those cups, and here in a minute, as you dismiss our host will be there to collect those cups. May I pronounce a, a blessing over you today. May the Lord Almighty bless you and keep you. May the Lord Almighty make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord Almighty lift his countenance towards you and give you peace. And I pray that everywhere we go this week, we would be reminded that we are radically loved by King Jesus pray this in the name of the Father who loves us, the Son who demonstrated love for us, and the Holy Spirit that awakens love within us, we pray. Amen. Hey, friends and family, I hope today's message was life-giving for you. I want to ask you to take a next step and go ahead and click the subscribe button so you never miss another chance to have an encounter with God. And while you're at it, take another step and share it with a friend. Maybe post it on your social network or text a coworker the link. And when you do that, you are partnering and get to be a part of seeing faith come to life in them. Hey, if Faith Church has made an impact in your life, if these messages are helping you gain traction in your faith, would you consider partnering with us financially? When you do that, it helps us widen our reach so that more people can have an encounter with the real Jesus. You can find information and ways to give on our central hub, faithchurchks.org. If, if you live in the Southeast Kansas region, we'd love to see it in person at one of our Sunday services. You can find those times on our hub as well, faithchurchks.org. Hey, remember this, God is for you and we love you.